Welcome. We're so glad that you're here today. Uh, we're just going to worship God, continue our worship with Him together through His Word. Uh, if you're a guest with us, uh, we'd love for you to fill out a Connect card. Uh, should have been in your bulletin. And if you would fill that out at the back table, there's a Next Step table. If you would take that back at the end of the service, we've got information about our church we'd love to give you and a little gift. Uh, the rest of us can drop that in the offering basket as it goes around. We'd love to get that from you at the end of the message today. Well, we've been saying one thing consistently, that fear is a liar. Fear is a liar. And it creeps into our minds and our thinking. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it creeps into my dreams. You, you have a fear dream, anybody? I do. I mean, it used to be like the lock, you know, in high school when you couldn't get your locker open, right? But now mine's been about preaching for the last 13 years. And it goes something like this. I show up to preach, but it's not here. It's at a different venue. And I can't find the room that everybody else is in. And I'm going down corridor after corridor trying to find where I'm supposed to preach. And I get there, and the setup team hadn't done their job, or the tech team's busted and my mic doesn't work. Uh, there's people everywhere. Uh, it's chaos. I can't find my notes. I can't find my Bible. Welcome to my fear. <laughs> That's my fear dream, man. It's just chaos. I wake up and go, oh, oh thank you, God. <laughs> it's not usually that bad. Fear is a liar. But we said last week, the kryptonite to fear is faith. But let's look at it the verse way. Oftentimes, fear is trying to rob us of our faith, isn't it? Fear tries to rob us of our faith. It tells us things like this. It tells us that everything rests on your shoulders. Fear will tell you that you are alone and nobody cares. Fear will tell you things like, uh, this is bigger than you can handle, and, and this, this fear, this whatever you're fearful about, is bigger than, uh, than the solution. So fear's a liar. And God, I believe this, God does not want us to live in fear, to live in any fear except one, the fear of the Lord. We're going to talk about what it means today to walk in the fear of the Lord. That sounds strange to you when you think about that. God tells us you ought to live in fear of him. That kind of sounds strange to me, like it doesn't compute. Like, why should we live in this fear? Why is this fear okay? But uh, we have to realize this fear isn't like the other fears. We don't need to put it in the same category. This fear, unlike the others, is helpful to us. All those other fears are destructive. This fear is actually put there for our good. And our benefit. So we're going to look today at what does it mean to live in the fear of the Lord. And before we jump into the scripture, I want, to, I want to address the most common misconception when it comes to the fear of the Lord. I think most of us think when we hear this, this uh, idea that the fear of the Lord, Lord goes something like this. That any time that I step outside of God's will, any time I sin, any time I make a decision that dishonors him, any time that I've got something busted in my life, then God is right there to punish us. If I make a poor decision in my finances or in a relationship, then, man, my car is going to break down or, you know, something bad's going to happen, that he's going to get even with me, and that's what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. Can I tell you that's not what it means? It's not the fear of the Lord. You guys ever play uh, the little kid's arcade game, Whack-A-Mole? You know Whack-A-Mole? You've been stuck at Chuck E. Cheese for three hours? You've been there, right? Your kids want to watch the mechanical mouse for the fourth time? So you got time to kill? And so you go to the whack-a-mole, at least I did, and, you know, it's awesome game because it's got this huge mallet. You get to beat on things. 
and it's so padded you can't hurt anybody, and they got a wire on it so you can't take it anywhere and beat on anybody. It's right there. And it's so awesome because these little mechanical moles pop up, right? And when they pop up, what do you do? You smack them. Yeah, it's awesome. And you ever, you know, it'd be good therapy. If you ever feel just stressed out, go to Chuck E. Cheese and the whack-a-mole. But I think some of us view God like this, that we're in the whack-a-mole machine. And any time God's looking down from heaven, and any time somebody gets out of line, whack. Oh, somebody's having a little too much fun over here. Boom. Oh, somebody's thinking a little too highly of themselves. Bap. There they go, doing that sin again. Thump. That God is just waiting for us to screw up so he can beat us back down. Can I tell you, that is not, that is not what it means to live in the fear of the Lord. How do I know that? I don't want to use the whole passage. We're going to look at this next week. It'll be my last week to preach before sabbatical. But we're going to use a snippet of it from 1 John chapter 4. And it says this. There is how much fear? No fear in love because fear has to do with what's the word? Punishment. When we're talking about the fear of the Lord, we're not talking about God punishing us because his love overrides all punishment. How do I know that? We know without a shadow of a doubt that God loves us. For God loved us so much that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's demonstrated without a shadow of a doubt that his love is his pervasive quality. And because he loved us so much, the punishment you and I deserve, Jesus Christ took upon himself and suffered and died so that all God has for us is love. And that love drives out all fear, save one, the fear of the Lord. It has nothing to do with punishment. Now, if you're a Bible scholar, you might say, well, wait, wait, wait. What about, what about this? What about Acts 5? What about Ananias and Sapphira? There's a, there's a passage in your New Testament that, that kind of looks kind of funky and so could cause a little doubt. So let's talk about it a second. If you don't know, Acts 5, there's a couple in the early church. People would sell possessions, their home and their land, and bring that money to the church, and they would use it to fund uh, other people that were poor, the ministry of the church and taking care of each other that way. And, and up to this point, people were selling property and bringing the whole amount and giving it to the church. Well, Ananias and Sapphira were, were wealthy. They owned land, and they sold their land, and they could have brought part of that to the, to the church, and they did, but they pretended like it was the whole amount of the sale. So when they brought the money to the to the apostles, they lied about, hey, this was the all amount. They had kept some back, but they lied about it. And the, the scripture says they lied to the Holy Spirit as well. If you know the story, God in that instant strikes them dead. One and then the other. You think, wow, isn't that punishment? What is that? What, what was God doing there? Why did that happen that way. Can I tell you, I've wrestled with this verse and that story for about the past month as I've thought about this. All I can tell you is this. God is not a bully up in heaven with a magnifying glass looking for you and I to burn as ants on the ground. He's not looking willy-nilly down trying to punish us for every little misdeed that we do in our lives. That's not who God is. I can tell you this, he does allow us to face the consequences of our choices. I can tell you that he does love us enough to discipline us when we, when we make a mistake. 
in our lives. Why? Here's the key question. Why does he do that? He is not a taskmaster in heaven punishing others for his own enjoyment. No. He is a heavenly father who corrects us for our own benefit. And that's why we get corrected in our lives. You can call that punishment if you like, but here's what I know. God's correction is calculated measured and appropriate for his purposes and for our own benefit in our lives. You can say, well, it didn't benefit Ananias and Sapphira so much, but you know what? God used it for his purposes. I want to show you the result of what happened in Acts 5. Acts 5 11 says, great, what's the word? Fear. The fear of the Lord seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. God used it in the early church to, to let them know he is an awesome God and he will correct those who need correction and he will discipline you as a father who loves not just two people but the whole church. He did it for the benefit of them all. See, the fear of the Lord sometimes, I still believe sometimes, occasionally, the fear of the Lord is about correcting our disobedience. There'll be times for that. But I think it's far more often about motivating our obedience. When you and I talk about the fear of the Lord, it's not that he's trying to correct us all the time. It's that he's trying to motivate us to live in obedience to him. That's what the fear of the Lord is all about. So we see in the Old Testament that you know if, if something happened, that God would bring a judgment upon them or punishment upon his people. And then this time in Acts 5, we see it again. But really, we don't see that so much today, do we? I mean, do you, do you make a mistake or do something you're not proud of and you know you disobeyed God and then there's a thundercloud following you around? Doesn't happen to me. That swift correction doesn't always come. In fact, here's what it means to live in the fear of the Lord. Gen uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you, this is Moses speaking, to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and their children may, after them may fear the Lord God, your God, as long as you live. That says every single person, man, woman, child, grandchild, God expected to live in the fear of him, in a healthy awe of him, in reverence to him, to, to keep us from disobedience, but more so motivate us towards obedience to him. And here's how. Here's how you live in the fear of the Lord. It's not a feeling. It's not feeling bad. Here's what it is. Keeping, by keeping all his decrees and commands... By keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy a long life. You know what? want to know what the fear of the Lord is. It is that you and I take seriously, we have serious intentions to obey God when he says something, that we take it serious enough that we seek to obey it in every facet of our lives. That's what it means to live in fear of the Lord. It's a motivation to obey him. In fact, the Psalms say this, Psalm, Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here's what it looks like. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. 
See, the better understanding that God is looking to correct us every time we mess up, the better understanding of the fear of the Lord is not that God is going to do something to us, but that, that we would fear that God, God might not do something in us and through us. It's not that God's going to put his hands on us to harm us, but that he might take his hand off of us. And everything that he intended to do in your life and through your life may not be accomplished because you were unwilling to follow his precepts, to obey his teachings, that when he says, thou shalt not, that you say, that's something I will not do. And when God says, thou shalt, you say, this is what I must do. To walk in the fear of the Lord is to say, God, whatever you say, go. If you say stop, I stop. If you say go, I go. If you say speak, I speak. If you say shut up, I shut up. That you have the right to dictate to me. That you have the right to tell me what's best for me. That you have the right to say these are the things you should do and must do. We take that serious. That is what it means, guys, to walk in the fear of the Lord. Now, when a mom and dad comes to the kid and says, I'd like for you to clean your room. And they jump up off the couch. And they run to their room. And they start throwing stuff away. Isn't that great? Yeah, it's never happened in my house either. (laughs) But when they obey you, when you ask them to clean their room, and they clean their room because they, they respect you and they love you, that's pretty awesome, right? If that's not the motivation, at least they know, look, these are the people that gave me life. And I owe them at least this much. I need to to do what they ask me to do. They feed me. They clothe me. They put a roof over my head. They give me gas money. Keep nagging me to get a job so they can get their own gas money. Welcome to this Remke household. And it's so awesome when they obey you. Guys, how much more? How much more? This is this heavenly Father who has breathed life into us. He knit you together in your mom's womb. He made you the way he wanted you. He made you in the image of God. He has given you life and breath to this day. He has provided for your needs up until this point. He has never failed you or forsaken you. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be atoning sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. And the debt we could never pay, he paid. And the punishment that should have been upon us was upon him and by his stripes we were healed that God that father when he says go how much more should we want to go when he says do how much more should we want to do that we would want to please him that our our one pervasive desire of life would be to please our heavenly father and do what he asks us to do. Guys, that is what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. Passionately, unapologetically obeying our God. And so when he says, thou shall not, you've already made your mind up. That's, I don't do those things. Because he said, thou shall not. And when he says, you, you should or you, should, you do, Those are things you just decide in advance. These are things I will do because I want to please him. And that's how God intends us to live our lives every day. We decide 
that we're not living for us. We're living in light of who he is. We're living in light of what all he's done. And because he's been so good to us, he's so awesome in power, he's so awesome in majesty, he's so awesome in all his deeds that we just want to we want to offer our life back to him. We could never fully repay him for all he's done for us. That's not even the point. But because we're so grateful, we want to offer our lives back in worship and adoration and thanks to our awesome God. That's what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. Not that he's going to put his hands on you to harm you, but he might take his hands off you. I had more sanctifying work. There were things I was going to root out of your life, sins you were going to have victory over, but you were unwilling, and so you're going to get to heaven one day and realize he had some sanctifying work to do in your life, and you missed it. There were things, there were people that were going to come to know Jesus. There were going to be things that relationships he was going to repair. There were going to be ministries that you were going to be a part of. There were things he wanted to do through your life, and you missed out because you said, God, I'm not going to do that. So the scriptures show us three different ways that we can lose sight of or lack this fear of the Lord. There's three things that will get in the way of us walking in the fear of the Lord. And here they are. First one is this. An unhealthy familiarity with God. An unhealthy familiarity with God. What do I mean? I'm not talking about intimacy here. Like we're seeking God and we're praying and we're reading our Bible and we're going to church and we're going to small group and talking about our faith and all that stuff. I'm not talking about that. James 4.8 makes it clear. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Isn't that a great promise? He, he always wants us to draw near. He always wants us to come close. He always wants to bear our heart to him. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is not familiarity. I mean, uh, seeking God. What I'm talking about is boredom with God. You think you got it figured out? I know what God wants for me. I know how to stay in the middle of the lane. I know not to hit the either guardrail over here or over here. And I'm just kind of cruising through life. And I've got God in his place, and I pull him out once in a while. And if I have an issue, he comes to the forefront. Or, you know, if there's a tragedy that happens, he comes out of my life. But, but by and large, I'm just, I just got God where I want him. I got him in this little box. And I've reduced him down to this thing that I manage. I reduced him down to this thing when I need him. Can I tell you, there is no such box. There's only a box in your brain and my brain. When we reduce him down, he is the everlasting God. He is infinite. He is indescribable. Our language can't do him justice. And there is no box he fits into. But we try to put him in there. Look what he says, Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, I mean your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Man, we lose sight of who God really is when we put him in this little bitty box and we start to think we can manage him, we get familiar when we get bored with him. Man, he is way more than we can describe the human language. There has not been a human language that has adequately described our God. We have trouble understanding him and just trying to understand him in our minds. He's beyond our comprehension. He's outside of time. He's immaterial. He's unfathomable. If we live life in three or four dimensions, he lives them in 30 or 100. He's unfathomable God. And 
And so to live in the fear of the Lord is to get a good, good dose of who God really is. To get a new glimpse at, at his character or his nature or his awesomeness or his power. And we get surprised, we get blown away by who he is all over again. And you go, man, I, I didn't, oh my gosh, I didn't know. Holy cow, God, you're greater, you're bigger, you're more awesome than I imagined. Or I see myself in light of who you are, and I just realize I'm just this broken being that you love anyway. And we get in awe of him. Can I ask you, when's the last time God has blown your mind? You were like, oh, whoa, uh-oh, wow. God, you're, you're more. Forgive me for thinking you're this. You're so much more than that. When's the last time God, the thought of God and who he is has scared you? And you've been blown away. And you've seen him in a new light. If that's been a long time, you might be missing out on the fear of the Lord. He's awesome. Secondly, we can lose sight of that fear of the Lord with an unhealthy fear of others. An unhealthy fear of others. You know, you and I can have only one purveying motivation in our lives at any given time. Because at some point, if we're trying to please this person and this person, at some point, those two places and those two people and what they want will diverge, and you and I would have to make a choice of which one we want to please most. Isn't that right? When it comes to the Lord, there's going to be a time and a place that if you have a fear of man, there's somebody in your life you're trying to please more than God, there's going to come a point where that person wants something that is contrary to what God wants, and you'll have to make a choice. They will come in conflict with each other at some point. Because the people that are influencing our culture and the people that are influencing you at school or at work, most of, all, most of them do not have in mind the things of God. And you'll have to choose. Who do I fear most? Who do I revere most? Who do I want to honor most? Who do I want to please most? You can only have one. Most. We only get one most. And God says, if you're going to walk in the fear of me, I want to be your most. I want to be your one motivation. I want to be the single greatest thing that, that you have in your life. The only one you want to please the most is me. That's what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. Look what the scripture says, Proverbs 29. Fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. It will grab us. It'll entangle us. It'll keep us from going on with God. It'll slow us down or stop us. And we'll get out of sync with God. We won't be walking in step with Him anymore if we fear what other people think. See, the fear of man will keep you and I from speaking the name Jesus when His name needs to be spoken. Isn't that right? The fear of man might keep us from doing something to help someone because we worry about what other people think about it. If we go over here and we're around those kind of people or this kind of person or get our hands dirty or love someone that other people don't love. The fear of man will keep us from telling other people about Jesus because we're worried about what they think. You know, the fear of man, if it's greater... Our job will be safe. People might like us. But we might miss out on being exactly where God wants us to be. Can I tell you the fear of man 
fear of the Lord being greater than the fear of man, it might cost you a relationship. It might cost you that. Fearing God, fearing the Lord more than fearing man might cost you your job. You got to be okay with that. This happened during Jesus' day, John 12. Look what, look what happens here. Jesus was doing his ministry and it says, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. They believed in Jesus. These leaders, these Sadducees, these Pharisees, these elders, these scribes, they came to saving faith in Jesus. That's a good thing. That's an awesome thing. It's the best thing. Then the next word, but. But because of the Pharisees, because of what the Pharisees thought, because of the, what they, they wanted to be accepted by the Pharisees, because they thought too much about the Pharisees, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Oh no, what if they throw me out and I can't worship in the synagogue anymore? And so I'm going to keep my mouth shut and the fear of man's going to keep me from following Jesus the way Jesus intended me to follow him. That's the fear of man. It's a short-sighted view. Think about this. When we put so much stock in other people, we're ascribing to them the value and the, and the position that only God himself should have. Because when we look for others for acceptance, we all have the need to be accepted, don't we? We all want to belong. God, I tell you, the church is a great place to belong. We all desire to belong. We all do. And when we look for others to be, meet our needs to be accepted and belong to the point where we follow their whims and their fancies instead of resting in the acceptance of God and that our Heavenly Father has loved us through His Son, Jesus Christ, we have given into the fear of man. We all need to be loved. You need love. I need love. But when you and I compromise our convictions in order to get love from someone else, instead of resting and being satisfied in the love of God, we have given in to the fear of man. When we're intimidated by somebody else and we cave into them and we allow them to dictate and take us somewhere we don't want to go because we're scared of them, we have given in to the fear of man instead of knowing who we are in Christ. Let me ask you, are you struggling with the fear of man? Can I challenge you? Fear the Lord more than them. Here, I'm going to give you a mental exercise. Picture yourself in front of the throne of God in his awesomeness and his majesty. God Almighty is seated, seated upon his throne, and he is bright and brilliant and awesome and, and majestic, and, and he makes you feel clean and holy and righteous and accepted and loved and forgiven, and it's awesome, and you're in front of him, and you think, I am complete, and it couldn't get any better than this. And then that person you fear walks into the scene. And they look pitifully small. Pitifully small. Isn't that the perspective? That we live to please him, not them. Lastly, we'll lose sight of the fear of God with an unhealthy fascination of ourselves. An unhealthy fascination of ourselves. We've got conflicting motivations, right? At some point, they diverge, and when they diverge, we have to choose, am I following what God wants? And in this case, am I following what I want? You guys have that wrestling match in your life too? 
You know, you take two kids, put them in a sandbox, and there's only one shovel. It's about to get ugly. There's about to be a wrestling match, a tug of war, and one kid's going to have sand all over their face as the other kid pulls them down, right? You guys have that wrestling match in your heart? God says this. God requires this. God wants this for me. Yet in my own rebellion, and even though I think I know best, and I'm choosing this other thing, and it's going to turn out to be bad for me, I still want to do this. And we tug, and we pull on the shovel with God. Look what Psalm 36 says. I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. Look at this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You want to know why our world is broken? There is a bunch of people running around with no fear of God before their eyes. That's why people choose wickedness. That's why they do evil things. That's why they elevate themselves and their agenda ahead of the agenda of God Almighty is there's no fear of God before their eyes. They think they are an entity to themselves and they elevate themselves to God-like status and say, what I say goes instead of what he says goes. Look what happens if that's, if that's where you, we get to. It says, in their own eyes, without, without the fear of the Lord, in their own eyes, they flatter themselves, think too highly of themselves, too much to, dis, to detect or hate their sin. When we replace God as the one, as the most, and we take that place and we take that precedent in our lives that we don't even see or care about the sin that is offensive to God. That's what that passage says. And we're not broken over our sin that we would displease our Heavenly Father. It doesn't bother us that much. In fact, most of the time we don't even see it because we don't even detect it in our own lives. Man, we're quick to detect it in everybody else, but not so much in us. Now, what I'm not calling us to is to be self-depreciating. You know, the greatest commandment Jesus said is love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind, and your second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. We can love ourselves, but loving ourselves too far is a bad thing. So what I'm saying is we love ourselves in light of who God's made us. We see ourselves. We're made in the image of God. We've been restored in a relationship to him through his son, Jesus Christ. And we're being remade and our identity is wrapped up in who God says we are, not in anything else we do in him alone. And so it's not about thinking less of yourself about thinking of yourself less. I love that. You guys know the purpose. Hello. One of my favorite books, Purpose Driven Life. It's a great, uh, great book if you haven't read it. Uh, it's a required reading at this Wimke household. I'm giving them out to my kids this summer. And every time I'm giving one out, I'm saying, turn to the first page and read the first sentence. And I'm just watching their face. That's awesome. You know what it says? It's not about you and they smile I said life's not about you it's not about me it's about him it's about his worthiness 
It's about his glory. It's about God and God alone, that he's the one that gets the credit, that our lives, we have breath in our lungs because almighty God is worthy of praise back to him. That's why we exist, is to bring God glory and honor and praise. And walking in the fear of the Lord desires that more than anything else. And so it's not about you and it's not about me. You know what? That's offensive, isn't it? We ought to take a little bit of offense. Let's just be honest. We ought to be offended enough to say, you know what? You're right. It's not about me. I don't have to be first. I don't have to be center stage. I don't have to be most important. I don't have to say I deserve this or that. It's not about me. It's about him. So let me just ask you, who's winning that tug of war match in the sandbox? Are you wrestling with God and saying, God, I want, I want, not me, me, me. Or you're saying, no, it's about you. It's about you being the most and the first in my life. Guys, I, I didn't know any other way to end this message other than to call us to repentance. Repentance is a word that means turning. That we're turning from our sin. That we're broken about our sin. That we're upset about how we've offended God. And we want to be right with Him. And turning and repenting means, God, I want to please you above all other things. And I've fallen short of that. And so I'm acknowledging that to you today. And I'm turning from that lifestyle. And I'm turning to a lifestyle where you come first and you're the most. So I'm going to call us to repentance. And the way we're going to do that is this last song. They're going to be singing. And I want to call us to prayer. I'm going to call you to prayer. I might be right where you are in your seat and you need to pray. But can I challenge you? You might need to go back to the next step table and pray with someone. There's a burden on you today and you don't need to leave here with it. And so Rich is back there. You can pray with him. While the music is playing, you can go to him. It might mean that you get down on your knees. We don't normally say this, but you might need to kneel before Almighty God right there at your seat and bow before him and acknowledge you are Lord once again in my life. You might need to make this stage an altar. And say, God, I come. It was a new start, a new beginning with you. You can have it all. You can have my life. It might mean for the first time, you've never accepted the love and forgiveness and, and uh, acceptance that God has for you through his son, Jesus Christ. But today, maybe you've recognized that Jesus himself died in your place. And he's offering forgiveness and eternal life to those who call on the name of Jesus Christ. That he's bore your punishment himself. That you might be forgiven and have life in his name. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I have fallen so short of describing you. There is none like you, God. Forgive me for putting you in a box. God, I pray you call your people to repentance today. That's not a shameful thing. That's a beautiful thing. God, in our hearts today, you have center stage. God, you have everything about us. We want to make you the most, the first. It is the desire of our heart to please you, oh God. If that's your prayer today, you call on his name right now. And if you want to know the joy, the life, the peace, the security of knowing your heavenly father has loved you and forgiven you, that you are clean before a holy God, that your sin has been forgiven, then you need to call on the name of Jesus today. 
and say, God, I need your forgiveness and I turn from my sin. You pray this with me. If this is you today, God, I turn from my sin and I turn to you, Jesus. I believe you died for me. So I'm opening my heart to you. Come into my life. God, forgive me of my sin. I want to follow you. I want to make the desire of my heart today to please you. And from this day forward, that is my goal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.